There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Now, you may have noticed over the years in various people that you've worked with that some of the most creative minds or sometimes the most critical experts in your organization are, well, a little quirky and sometimes a little hard to understand or to get along with or to work with or to talk to or a whole host of variations on that theme. My guest this week, Melissa Schilling, agrees, at least in part, with that statement and has a lot of insights about what that means, especially when we're talking about innovation. So in addition to that, we're going to talk about the insights of personalities of people who are great innovators, and we're going to talk also about how to get more creativity out of everyone. So my guest is Melissa Schilling. She's the author of Quirky, The Remarkable Story of the Traits, Foibles, and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Change the World. Melissa is also a professor of management and organizations at NYU Stern, and she's one of the world's leading experts on innovation. She's got a number of textbooks that are pretty famous, one of which, Strategic Management of Technological Innovation, now in its fifth edition, is the number one innovation strategy textbook in the world and available in seven languages, and she's the author of seven others. Melissa and her work have been featured on NPR's Marketplace, Bloomberg, Business Week, Harvard Business Review, Huffington Post, CNBC, Scientific American, UST, USA Today, and I just learned she's on her way to do a number of talks at conference events in London as well. She's a regular speaker on both the U.S. stage and the international stage in corporations as well as within her colleagues at business schools. I'm excited to talk about this, and I have to congratulate you on the book. It's a remarkable study. Melissa, welcome to the show. So I'm excited to talk about this um, topic. I've long believed that we tolerate some behaviors, really some personalities, from experts in our organization that we would not tolerate the same behavior in our non-experts. And so yeah. much of the challenges of getting out of the comfort zone of expertise is really about rounding out some of the quirks of your personality. Now, I know this wasn't really the focus of your, your particular work. Yours was about innovators. But mm-hmm. do you find the same kind of phenomena? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the things you learn, you're coming at it at the angle of if you are quirky, how you can round that out and... Uh, you know, you can actually see that in the different levels of success of the innovators. So, for instance, Nikola Tesla was by far the quirkiest and, you know, probably the most brilliant and created some of the most profound innovations of anybody that I studied. But he didn't have that ability to really uh, relate to people well, and he was not well-rounded. Um, and as a result, you know, he basically had a lot of his innovations stolen out from under him. You know, they basically erased him from history textbooks 
Now, someone like Steve Jobs, he could be a difficult person, but he could also be a charismatic person. So he was significantly more successful in getting people to cooperate with him than Nikola Tesla. And I'd say Elon Musk is even even better still. You know, Elon Musk has some traits that look a lot like Nikola Tesla or like Steve Jobs. He also has photographic memory. He's a very stubborn person with hugely ambitious, idealistic goals. But he's also a person who can work with people and who knows how to, uh, you know, develop the respect of other people and has respect for other people. And he's built an incredible team around him, which has enabled him to be you know, very influential in lots of different spheres. But I think there's another side here, too, and I think that as a leader, one of the ways you have to get out of your comfort zone to make you more successful is that you have to learn how to not be frightened off of other people's quirkiness, right? You have to be able to see that some of the most insightful and interesting people are insightful and interesting precisely because they might be a little unusual. They might see the world in a different way or they might interact with it in a different way. They might not cooperate. Uh, they might stick up for ideas that other people don't like. And, and our instinct tends to be to quell that in the name of, you know, harmony and smooth collaborations when, in fact, we have to learn to embrace it and sometimes maybe even carve out space to let people, uh, you know, it, fully indulge that side of themselves. Uh, you know, I've seen that in a number of senior leaders and CEOs who are a bit tolerant, others would say, of some unusual perspectives and some personalities that get many of us riled the wrong way. And they do that because there's a special quality in that person that they just don't want to kill. And they seem to know that if I kill that quality, I kill the creativity the insight, yeah. the product development, everything that goes with that person. You know, I think that there's two gifts a really great leader can have in that respect. And one of them is to be able to see sort of inside a person, to see beyond that cover that most of us are judging with and to see what it is that's that, that person is special, you know, the thing that is special about that person, their gift or their insight or their intelligence without becoming distracted by, let's say, the quirky veneer it's under. And the other gift, I would say, is finding a way to enable that person to be successful, right, to find ways to loop them into the organization or find routines or processes or teams that are successful for that person. I mean, that's a, that's a really powerful leadership skill. You know, one of my favorite stories is of Steve Jobs when he first applied at Atari, uh, and he showed up. He had just come back from India, and he was dirty, and his, you know, his hair was greasy, and he, he had body odor because he wasn't showering at that time, and he was wearing sandals, and his feet were dirty. And he comes into the lobby, and he tells tells the receptionist, I want a job. I'm not leaving until you give me a job. And she calls back to Al Acorn and says, we've got a hippie kid in the lobby here who says he's not leaving until we give him a job. Do you want me to have security throw him out? And Al Acorn said, no, send him back. And so Steve Jobs goes back and sits down with Al Acorn, puts his feet up on the desk, and has this conversation with Al Acorn. And Al Acorn said throughout that conversation he could see the creativity and insight in Steve Jobs. And he didn't let it bother him that his feet were up on the desk or that he, that he looked, you know, dirty or that he smelled bad. And so he gave Steve Jobs a job. And uh, that was a pretty insightful leadership move on his part. Okay. All right. I love this. So 
I mean, Sim, I think it is important that great leaders really can see beyond the cover, as you said, and then they figure out a way to make that person successful. They put them in the right environment. They give them the right kind of strokes. They protect them in the right kind of ways, something that just brings out the best in that person. And I've seen a different leader absolutely kill the genius that was there. But Melissa, let's back up. We've been talking about this in general and I want to talk just a tad bit about the work you did that went into this book so just give us the highlights you studied all these famous innovators so tell us about it okay so uh it all started it started probably in 2010 when Steve Jobs was sick because that's when students started coming to me and asking me what's going to happen at Apple you know how much of that innovation really comes from him and how much of that is a myth uh, if it does come from him, can it be handed down to a successor? Can we learn it? And, and at its core, people were asking, how can I be like that, right? And I yeah. looked to the research and I realized that we really didn't have good answers to that question. It's, it's an awkward question for us to study in the ways that we study to publish in scientific journals because it's hard to use a large sample and you can't pull these people into a lab. And so I ended up setting aside a sabbatical to just study Steve Jobs. I just wanted to satisfy my own curiosity and I wanted to know what he was like as a person. I wanted to know every aspect of his personality, what he was like as a little kid, what his beliefs were, what his biases were. And when I started doing that, I started to see that he had some really unusual commonalities with some other innovators I had studied. And that's when I got inspired to do what we call a multiple case study research project, where you assemble, uh, in this case, eight. You, you create eight case studies, and then you do this pairwise dyadic comparison between them to sort of rigorously surface any themes, and then to also go through and rigorously try to refute any themes, right? Because you don't want to just... You don't want to uh, notice something and then look for things that affirm it. You're actively trying to discount things to make sure that what what really sticks you really believe in. And uh, it took six years. It was a pretty intensive study process. The people who are in my set were chosen through a research protocol that left me out of it as much as possible because as a researcher, I don't. if I go and handpick people to put in my sample, I'm going to bias the process. Uh, so you create a protocol that will select the cases for you if you can, which I did. And then, you know, I was much to my chagrin, I only had one woman. When I, when I originally, the protocol only yielded about 30 people that would have qualified to study for this project based on the criteria I set up. And only one of them was a woman, and they were all white. And I thought, oh, no, you know, I'm going to get crucified for this. And so at first I started trying to look for other people that would meet the criteria. And then I realized that was compromising uh, my rigor as a scientist. So I decided to instead try to figure out why. Why is there only one woman? You know, why are there no uh, people of color in the set? And that ended up being one of the easier questions to answer because it turns out if you look at the time frame of people who could have possibly made it into a list of most famous innovators of all time, throughout the vast, vast majority of that time frame, women weren't even allowed to go to college, right? Then they certainly weren't welcome into business and science. And, and the study of Marie Curie is just a, it's beautiful and inspiring, but also really sad and hard to read because she experienced intense discrimination throughout her entire career and the fact that she was able to achieve as much as she did in an environment that basically told her to go away is truly remarkable okay so you ended up i think it's eight people that you ended up with just hit the names for us so that we can kind of get a sense of who's in this set 
Okay, so there's Elon Musk, who, of course, everybody knows, founded SpaceX and Tesla Motors and, and also created the plan for Solar City and was one of the people who created PayPal. There's Marie Curie, who discovered radium, polonium, radioactivity as an atomic principle, and also invented some of the earliest portable X-ray units that she took to, to the field in World War I and is personally attributed with saving over a million soldiers' lives. There's Albert Einstein, who I don't think needs much uh, explanation because he completely revolutionized physics. There's Benjamin Franklin, who a lot of his innovations were social innovations, like libraries and volunteer fire brigades and some of the first street sweeping and street lighting programs, but also technological innovations, like the, the first catheter and the first bifocals and, and stoves that were more efficient with energy, and all some, some fundamental principles of electricity that he discovered that are considered to be on par with Newton. Uh, there's Nikola Tesla, who, as I mentioned, was perhaps the, the most weird and amazing of all of them, completely photographic memory, brilliant from the time he was a child, knew from the age of 14 that he would build a giant uh, generator underneath uh, Niagara Falls, which he did then within the next couple of decades. He invented AC electricity and the very first remote-controlled robots. He invented wireless communication. Uh, so he's a, a, a staggeringly important person in innovation who a lot of people don't know well because a lot of his his innovations were sort of uh, kind of stolen from him. And then there's Steve Jobs, who I don't think needs much explanation. Uh, there's Thomas Edison, who, of course, is most associated with the light bulb, uh, but also did lots of other kind of work in DC electricity, which was the rival to AC electricity, uh, and is attributed with some, some of the earliest work in batteries. And then there's Dean Kamen, who a lot of people don't know his name, uh, but he invented the world's first portable drug infusion pump, the world's first portable dialysis machine, the world's first wheelchair that can climb stairs, and then the technology in that wheelchair he used to develop the Segway personal transporter. And usually people do are familiar with the Segway, but they aren't familiar with the fact that he has had so many accomplishments in medicine. And probably the most amazing thing about him is that he is completely just revered in medicine for all of his innovations and has no medical training whatsoever doesn't even have a college degree of any sort so again a very remarkable individual so some of the myths we have about great innovators is that they are self-educated did you find that to be true in your set I actually did. I am, you know, I have to say, I'm a business professor, so <laughs> one of the things you're kind of hoping to find as a business professor is that education matters, and it does matter. It really, really matters, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't work the same way that I anticipated, and, and by that I mean, if you look at this set of people, first of all, several of them had far less education than you would expect. Some of them had no education at all. So like Thomas Edison and Benjamin Franklin basically had no education at all, completely self-taught, but Thomas Edison had read all the great classic science books by the age of 12, like really, really tough college-level material by the age of 12. And Benjamin Franklin was also so keen on books that this is why his father uh, basically indentured him to become a printer, because he thought at least that way he'll be exposed to books. He didn't have enough money to send him to school. Uh, then you have someone like Steve Jobs or Dean Kamen, who both dropped out of college and, you know, Dean Kamen got really mediocre grades in high school, but he reads science texts for fun. You know, he found that the structure of school just chafed him. It, it aggravated him. It didn't come at the right pace for him. And he needed to be able to study the subjects he wanted to study. 
as deep or as wide as he wanted to study them. And trying to adhere to a standardized curriculum just didn't work for him. It, he couldn't focus. It, it made him aggravated. So he did much better when he basically dropped out of school and started studying on his own. And that's interesting because Albert Einstein says a very similar thing. He said that he felt most of his schooling had actually been to his detriment, uh, that the standardized curricula basically extinguishes the joy of education and the creativity, but he was a vigorous, vigorous self-educator. So um, Marie Curie, Elon Musk, these people are all intense, intense self-educators. In fact, I I love the story of Elon Musk when he decides that, you know, we need to go to Mars, and NASA is not intending to get us to Mars, and he gets frustrated by that. So he starts asking around, and he talks to the Russians, and he talks to various people about how he can get reusable rockets made. And they all tell him it's impossible, and he refuses to believe it's impossible. So he gets rocket science techs and teaches himself rocket science and comes up with his own prototype for a reusable rocket, uh, which is kind of magical. You know, that, that, that idea that you can go and teach yourself anything and change the world, I think, is incredibly empowering. So... So the structure of standardized education didn't work for a lot of these people, but education, self-education, was extremely important for a lot of these people. And I think there's a, a really important lesson there because it suggests that you know there could be a lot of people right now who could be breakthrough innovators who are not being fully developed to their potential in a standardized curriculum. And, you know, we, we, we experience a lot of kids who don't do well in school or who don't like school who might actually love school or love education if it were in a format that was more suited to their nature and their interests. Yeah, it does, it does question in some ways how we do education and this notion that one size has to fit all when right. that may not be the formula that works for, as you said, some really, really creative minds. All right, so you find that these major innovators are all, self-education is a really important component of them. What else did you find about their personalities? What? Yeah, just give us one other, and we'll come back and discuss a few more in details. Okay, so one of the things that I found to be really important uh, is that almost all of them, and, I, and the exception there is Thomas Edison. He's an interesting case, but the other seven, and I, you know, I didn't, I didn't go looking for this because this is not in the creativity or innovation research at all, so this really came as quite a surprise, but they were all pursuing some big idealistic goal. They had some goal that was vastly more important to them than money or leisure or reputation, and as a result, they worked intensely hard, and they were willing to bear a lot of suffering and a lot of criticism, and anytime they failed, they just got up, dug in their heels, and tried harder because they believed they were working for something so much bigger than themselves. You know, Elon Musk wants to save the species. That's why he wants to colonize Mars. And Marie Curie was really, it's a complicated story, but she was really fighting to save Poland through science. Nikola Tesla thought if he invented free energy, it would relieve mankind from burdensome toil and that therefore we could pursue more creative pursuits and it would be so much better for mankind. He also believed that if he invented wireless communication, that it would obviate war because surely if we could talk to each other, uh, we wouldn't need to fight or we wouldn't want to fight. I think he'd be a little disappointed to find out that didn't turn out to be true. (laughs) (laughs) But at least we know a little more about each other along the way. That's okay, maybe too. Isn't that fascinating I realize it there's an ages old study um, that I don't know that has been replicated about um, Nobel Prize laureates at least and the work that they most highly prize in their own lifespan 
And often it was tied to something that was a bigger goal. Yeah. So I'm not yeah. surprised to find that. And I think as we you know look at businesses and we find people who have a sense of purpose, it is that sense of something bigger that keeps them going, motivated yeah. to kind of, as you say, dig in and keep going when all else has gone wrong. You know, it fuels um, you. It also makes you think bigger. Like if you were thinking, if you were thinking about this gigantic idealistic goal that you really feel like needs to be accomplished for the world, you can... It refocuses your thoughts onto a very distant point on the horizon. It makes you a bigger thinker. And, and this is a key part, too. It makes you more resilient. So sometimes people ask me, where does that grit or that persistence come from? You know, one place it comes from is when you're pursuing an idealistic goal because you know that the, the work is more important than you. So even if people aren't, are, even if people aren't being nice to you or, or tell you that you're not doing a good job or that you will fail, you just don't listen. And, and that just don't listen is actually super important too. And it's related to another thing I found in common with the innovators. And that is that a lot of them had a little bit of, in fact, some of them had a lot of it, not just a little bit, but a lot of them had a sense of separateness, this, this sort of social detachment where uh, maybe they didn't like to be around people or they didn't feel like they fit in. They didn't feel like the rules of the social world applied to them. Some of them were hardcore loners like Marie Curie and Nikola Tesla were serious, serious loners. I think you could probably make the same case for, for Dean Kamen. Uh, and Albert Einstein talked a lot about not feeling like loving humanity, but not really liking people that much. <laughs> but what that did, um, that detachment, it made him tougher in a way and more willing to fight for ideas that were unpopular. It made them willing to challenge the status quo and to be independent thinkers. And that turns out to be really important uh, because we have a lot of structures and organizations today that are around harmony and collaboration and consensus and getting along. And those are really valuable for lots of processes, but they might be really destructive for innovation because most breakthrough ideas initially seem unreasonable, right? They seem weird and, and they're, it's very unlikely that multiple people are going to come into a group with the same breakthrough idea. It's also unlikely that if you pitch a really incredible breakthrough idea that other people are going to get it and like it, so they're going to disagree with you. So if we're teaching people how to get along, what we're going to teach them to do is to shave off all the interesting corners off of their breakthrough ideas or to only come up with ideas that they already know there will be consensus around, which is going to be more mediocre ideas. It's interesting. Um, it, we certainly, we all know the value of harmony and collaboration and consensus building and team play and bringing people along and finding an idea with enough compromise that people can get behind. But I think you're absolutely right that that misses some of the breakthroughs because some of the yeah. interesting breakthroughs are edgy. Um, right. And I, as you said, they're quite they're quite unreasonable. Okay. Quite unreasonable. And I also think, and I think this is a study we're going to work on next, which um, I'm really excited about. I think one of the reasons why we don't see as many women on the these rosters of most famous innovators is that traditionally women probably paid a, a much steeper penalty for being disagreeable than men. And uh, that's a tragedy in a way. We need to find a way to encourage women to be disagreeable, to, to glorify that disagreeability of women. Okay, I'm signing up for this one. And, and, you know, absolutely, there are a number of people who would say, please don't tell her to be any more disagreeable. But I like that. I like that idea. 
All right. So, Melissa, let's take a break at this point and um, we'll come back. I want to pick up with some of these qualities that we haven't talked about and then shift the focus on, well, so how do you deal with somebody on your team who actually does behave that way? What's the approach to them? So with me today is Melissa Schilling. She's the author of Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. And as you can tell, some very interesting insights about people who really, truly break the mold. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Melissa Schilling, and she's the author of Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. Melissa has studied eight famous, incredibly innovative, and game changers in every sense of the way um, innovators. She's done this through a quite rigorous scientific methodology, which uh, first selects the cases not just because she liked them or because they were available, but for a very specific set of criteria, which means it removes some bias. And then there's a number of techniques that makes the comparison of the examples of what each person is like um, a little less fraught with a bias, again, in terms of uh, positive confirmation. So I guess I'll leave it at that without saying anything else around it. The couple of findings that we've been talking about so far is when you look at innovators like Elon Musk and Marie Curie and Albert Einstein and Nikola Tesla and Steve Jobs, among others, you find that most, more often than not, they're self-educated. And it's that the standard way of approaching education, the, the rigor and the structures behind that just didn't work for them. So they went off to do the study, but in a self-directed kind of way. She's also found that often... They had a, this higher sense of purpose, something bigger than themselves that kept them fu- fueled and looking on the horizon and being more resilient. That there was a sense of separateness, a bit of social detachment, um, 
maybe loving humanity, but not necessarily loving people, and that they were quite independent thinkers, not so much focused on harmony and consensus and collaboration, kind of willing to do some unpopular edgy pieces that create some of the breakthroughs. So, Melissa, is there anything else about the personalities of these innovators that's worth calling attention to? Yeah, there's one that's uh, there's one trait that's really, really important. And one of the great things about it is we can cultivate it in ourselves and in our employees and even in our children. Uh, and it's also really great because it'll affect not only your innovativeness, but your productivity generally and your general sense of well-being. And in, in psychology, we call it self-efficacy, which is an awkward word, but uh, self-efficacy is a it's a type of confidence. It's task-related self-confidence that relates to your faith you have and your ability to overcome obstacles to achieve your goals. And people with really high self-efficacy are more likely to take on projects and will stick with them when the going gets tough because they just fundamentally believe they'll accomplish them. They, they believe they will overcome those obstacles and they will achieve their goals. And, and if some, if sometimes people think that entrepreneurs or innovators um, lack risk aversion or that, they, that they're more risk tolerant. It's more accurate to say that the calculus of risk becomes very different if you believe that you will succeed if you just try hard enough, right? That's going to change right. the mass of, of any given investment or, or undertaking. And so people, all of these innovators that I studied had just remarkable self-efficacy where they just, and, and some of them even described it. They didn't have the word self-efficacy, a lot of them during the time when they worked, because that's not a word. It's, it's like a, it's kind of a strange phrase even now. But they would describe it in a way we would say, oh, that's exactly self-efficacy. And uh, to me, the archetypal, you know, my icon of self-efficacy, although they all have it, but the icon to me is Elon Musk, because this is a guy who the entire space industry said, you can't make reusable rockets. We've been trying for 50 years. It, you know, if it could be done, we would have done it. So don't think you're going to march into the industry, you know, some outsider kid and do it. And he just shrugs, shrugs his shoulders and says, I think I can do it. And then he did it, you know, which is amazing. Or when, you know, Nikola Tesla told his father, I'm going to build a water wheel under Niagara Falls. It's going to shoot electricity all across America. I mean, I'm sure his father thought that that was just a silly dream of a child, but it, was, it turned out to absolutely be true. So self-efficacy is incredibly powerful. And one of the wonderful things about it is that there's, there's a couple of different ways you can increase your self-efficacy and that you can also increase the self-efficacy of people around you. Okay. Well, tell us, okay. how do you increase it? Okay. So the first, the thing that most powerfully impacts your self-efficacy is your experience of succeeding at things. So like early wins. And when you read the stories of these people, you almost always encounter some hugely important early win they had. So for Steve Jobs, for instance, he talks about the blue boxes that he built with Wozniak when they were both pretty young. And these were blue boxes. They were like sort of little digital machines that they used to hack the AT&T phone system so that they could make free long distance calls. And it was a, a little lark. It was like a, a joke when they first started a game. Let's see if we can do it. That'll be funny. But they were able to do it. And then they started selling them for $100 a piece. And it was like a light bulb went on in Steve Jobs' head. And he speaks, you know, in his own words, he says, you know, if it hadn't been for the blue boxes, there would have been no Apple. Because that experience of doing the blue boxes showed us what we were capable of, that we could really do something like this and make money. So early wins. So if early wins are a big part of how you're going to get self-efficacy, that means we want to create environments that are 
uh, tolerant of failure and that encourage people to take some risks. It also means that when we see people initially struggling with something, uh, instead of we might have this instinct to jump in and help them because that feels nurturing and good for social bonding. But instead, if we think there's a chance that they can get through it on their own, we should stand back and say, hey, you got this. I have faith in you. I think you can do it. You know, let children work out solutions to problems themselves and give employees uh, projects to to figure out, even if it would be more efficient for you to tell them, here's how you do it, here's how to get it done quickly. It might be better to let them figure out how to get it done because they'll get self-efficacy that way. Now, um, there's another way that you can also increase self-efficacy. It's not quite as good as early wins, but it's still pretty good. And the beauty of it is that it's dead easy. And um, it's called vicarious learning. And it basically takes advantage of the fact that the human species, as a social, socially interdependent species, we are wired for social learning, which means that we look at each other to figure out what we can do. You know, I, 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 you know, I might see not to eat the berries on that bush because they're poisonous because they killed you, and now I don't have to eat them myself, which is a very valuable thing to learn. Or I might see that, oh, that tree is climbable because, look, that other person climbed the tree. So you learn what you can climb up, what you can endure, what you can jump over, in large part by what you see other people do. Now, that means you can read hero stories, read stories about inspirational people who've overcome obstacles to achieve their goals, especially if they're people that you can in some way identify with. And when you read these stories, to some degree, you internalize that self-efficacy that they got. You think, I can do that. This is something that I'm capable of. So um, it's, it's really wonderful. It, it tells you exactly why you know, you suddenly have a, a real mechanism for understanding why we want children to read really inspirational stories of people who endure hardship and accomplish great things because it's teaching them what they can do. Sounds like we also as businesses want to hire these sort of heroes that have overcome major obstacles and bring them to our organizations to talk more regularly. Yeah, and we want to celebrate the hero stories that have already happened in the organization that people don't know about. So one exercise I've done with uh, organizations before is I'll break them into groups, and I'll have each group identify a hero story that happened in the organization, like some project that was led by someone, some obstacle they faced, you know, how they overcame it, and I have them write up this story, and then we find a way to showcase it in a way that people will be exposed to it. So one time we had the idea of putting it on on the cups, the coffee cups, like printing it on the actual coffee cups that were used in the organization so that every month you could have a new hero story, and it was about an ordinary person in your workplace who overcame obstacles to achieve their goals because often hero stories are all around us, and we just need to, we need to find out about them and remind other people about them. So the notion is, I see somebody else doing something heroic. They achieve an obstacle. They get past it. They have a win. I identify with that person in some way and some, something that they're like me, and that inspires me or leads me to believe that I, too, can get past an obstacle, which gives me self-efficacy. Okay? Right. You, you are wired to learn that way. It's just in, it's in your nature. Fabulous, fabulous. Now I know why I love all, why we love all those books and shows and stories and, and everything around it. Okay, so we have that these innovators, um, that they have the self-efficacy. And again, to repeat, self-efficacy is this confidence that I can get over the obstacle. And we improve self-efficacy by having some early wins and by seeing that other people have gotten past obstacles. Okay. Right. 
So let's turn for, and you've given some hints about how we can all be a little bit more creative. Let's turn for a moment and say, suppose I'm managing one of these massive innovators with all of these qualities that we've just been talking about. What's Mm -hmm. your advice on how I make sure I don't kill the soul of the innovator? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is they're going to need a little space and time to work and think alone. In fact, I would argue that we all need time to work and think and read alone because we don't fully develop our own creative ideas when we're in a group. We need to actually because other people essentially hijack our thinking process. It's it's very hard to follow your own independent thinking process if other people are talking. So, you know, you need to spend that time and write down your own idea about how things are going to work and follow it several steps out. Um, but the other thing to bear in mind is a lot of these, a lot of these people who are extremely innovative, part of what makes them innovative isn't just coming up with creative ideas, but being willing to fight for them. And that person is someone who is going to respond negatively to a lot of top-down structure. So a less structured environment, less hierarchical formality, fewer rules, less uh, less standardization of the time we work or how we work or where we work or what we're wearing when we work. All these things actually create an environment that's very friendly for a very creative person, giving them, you know, more flexibility and, and more independence and more autonomy. Um, you know, when you, when you read the, at least with the innovators that I studied, a lot of them exhibited this incredible dislike for authority. They couldn't stand being told what to do. Um, you know, and it's ironic because Steve Jobs, you know, hated being told what to do, really resisted authority, but then in fact was a rather authoritarian leader himself, which is unfortunate in some ways. Right. Uh, but not because, like, Albert, Albert Einstein despised authority so much that it, he, he ended up becoming very politically involved around anti-authoritarianism later in his life. But, but, you know, the implications for the organization are pretty clear. And I think you already see a lot of this. Um, you see it certainly in tech firms in the United States. Uh, when you start moving into more traditional firms, you start seeing a lot more structure, uh, a lot more standardization. It, it's also very acute in some other countries where hierarchy and power distance play much bigger roles. Uh, you know, those things are going to, they're, they're going to cut out a lot of creativity. Right. I, I certainly see that in places where you're asking people to be innovative and they're sort of the core of the guts of an organization, whether it's a large organization or a small organization, and trying to find a way to sequester them off so that they can do their own thing in their own way without contaminating the standardization and the structure and the processes and the rest of the organization. Yeah, and vice versa. We call that the ambidextrous organization, right? And sometimes organization, there's parts of the organization that have to be reliable and efficient and, you know, low defect rates, right? And that part of the organization may require a lot of standardization and rules and hierarchy. Uh, And the other part of the organization that's coming up with new ideas may need to be more organic and less standardized. And so you have to find ways to, to, to separate those. Yeah. I, uh, I also want to come back on something you said earlier that I didn't give enough attention to, which is this notion of having space and time to work and think on your own, alone on your own. We do know, we've seen that in so many places, even just in the simple brainstorming exercise, that when I put out one idea, as soon as um, 
somebody else starts talking or piggybacking on that or giving their idea, I shut down my own thinking about what else. So this notion of space and time, which has become for aloneness, which has become a bit of an anathema in our current modern organizations can also be critical. Let me come to your notion of authority and that the dislike for authority. Okay. So I am the boss. I got this creative person working for me. They really don't like um, authority. How? Any advice on how to kind of be okay with that or manage that? You know, I think a lot of what you have to do is manage yourself. Um, you know, your desire to control somebody else's behavior is, is part of what you're going to have to manage. Uh, when you say, how do you manage them? You know, if you get someone who's... You know, it's it's hard. It's a complicated question to answer because there's a lot of different kinds of people who need to be who might need different forms of management and different types of organizations that require different forms of management. But the most of the people I studied kind of needed to not be managed, if you know what I mean. Yeah, they need right. they would have responded quite negatively to management, uh, but they loved what they did and they worked extremely extremely hard. And so it's kind of similar to what Mahaley writes about when he writes about flow. And that is that if you can find the activities that really engage an intelligent person to where they're really excited by it and they're working hard on it and they lose all sense of time and, and place, you just want to stand back and let them go because they will work incredibly hard and they want to solve the problem and they will do it in a better way than you could manage it. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I certainly, that's what I see when I see people who are really good as we started at the beginning of finding the individual and letting them work the way they work and how they work and sort of be a, see the, the good in them, the spark in them. Okay, Melissa, we've got just a couple minutes before we're going to close for the day. Any other advice about how in, all of us can be more creative? You've given a couple of hints, but anything else? <laughs> Well, I want to reiterate that spending a little time thinking and reading and writing alone are super, super important. Uh, that'll really do wonders for you, like sit and write. You can also learn a trick. You know, here was an interesting thing. Both Elon Musk and Nikola Tesla had photographic memory, and it allowed them to manipulate ideas and objects in their heads. And Elon Musk, for instance, routinely thinks about 10 steps out, kind of like a chess master thinks 10 steps out or, or 10 plays out on a chess board. And so he's going to end up somewhere that other people just don't even understand. And, you know, your first thought is, well, I don't have photographic memory. I can't do that. But you know what? You don't need photographic memory. You can use paper and pencil. And getting into the habit of saying, okay, well, what would happen then? And what would happen then? And what would happen then? That is a really valuable exercise because you can start to think a lot bigger. And if you have a hard time looking forward, one of the tricks that I do in some workshops um, if you want to get people to see like the, the bigger picture and they're having trouble saying what happens then, what happens then, try going the other direction. What caused that? What caused right. that? What caused Correct. that? Because the more temporal distance you create between what you're, you know, between some, you know, object that you're focusing on and where you're thinking now, you start to basically rise up, you know, to you get the 100 foot perspective, the 500 per- Foot perspective, the 200 right. mile perspective. Mm-hmm. It's a super cool mm-hmm. trick. Um, another thing I would say Excellent. is I'm going to I'm going to stop you there, Melissa, because we're uh, Melissa. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back.
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Melissa Schilling, and we've been talking about Quirky, and in particular, the personalities of some of the great innovators in the world. Now, we were just talking about what it is that any of us can do to increase our own creativity in real time. And I'm going to just review a couple of these because I think there's some brilliant ideas in here. One of them is this notion of finding early wins. Um, so that means that when we're working with people and with ourselves, having faith in other people and letting them just continue to work with it until they get us an early win seems to be very, very important. Number two is finding stories of heroes who've actually survived or worked through obstacles and succeeded. And the more we tell those stories, even the local simple stories of people around us or read those stories in books or bring those people in for talks is also going to help us feel that we can push through obstacles. There's this other idea that you want to spend time on your own thinking and writing so that your ideas don't get hijacked. And Melissa was just giving an excellent example of ways of doing that with the thing she calls temporal distance. That's to ask yourself, if I did this on paper by myself, what would happen then and then and then and then? Or to work backwards from that and to say, well, here's the outcome we want, but what would have caused that and what would have caused that and what would have caused that? So those are great ways already to create to generate more creativity around us. Okay, Melissa, I can't resist. What else can we do? You know, there's another thing that I think is uh, super important to realize is that when you study all these breakthrough innovators, and for that matter, innovators generally, which I've studied my whole career, one of the things you find is that very often breakthroughs come from outsiders. And they come from outsiders precisely because outsiders, first of all, haven't been indoctrinated in the paradigms 
uh, that sort of shackle other people, right? Paradigms become rules, right? The, the way we do things around here become rules that constrain the way we can even think about problems. Outsiders don't have those rules. They might not even know about them, or they might assume that they're not the right rules. And so very often these innovators come from, these uh, innovators come from outside the industry in which they end up having this big impact in. Well, if you combine that knowledge with the whole self-efficacy and self-education insights that we talked about earlier, one of the things that means you can and should do is pick something you care about and decide you can master it. Like just absolutely believe that if you set your mind to something, you can master it on your own and do something about it, right? Maybe it's finding a cure for HIV or maybe it's finding a way to get us onto renewable energies. But never assume that just because you didn't go through some particular educational program or you didn't work for the central firm in the area that you can't be the one that changes the world. You should go for it. And even if you don't change the world in the way you thought you were going to, you might change the world in another way entirely. Okay. I like that. This notion that I don't have to go to get the advanced degree. I don't have to go work for the right company. I don't have to be in the right part of the world. I just pick something that I care about, a bigger issue. I master, I go study it all on my own, and I go out and do something with it. Yeah, and which is not to undermine the importance of these people who have specialized in these fields. You are absolutely going to need other people to help you execute and implement your ideas. Uh, so those people are super important. But, but the point is that just don't assume that there's anything out there that you couldn't do if you set your mind to it. Okay. So let's talk about this notion of bringing other people along, because even as these major innovators, at some point, they had to turn to other people and get them involved, a team around them, somebody's oh, yeah. going to implement it. And how did that process go? And what can we learn from it? I mean, that was the most important thing, in fact. like that, Another thing about being a business school professor is we tend to assume that money is a really crucial ingredient to foster innovation. So we have a tendency to focus on things like angel investors and stock markets and venture capital networks. But when you look across these breakthrough innovators, they all started with nothing. Every single one of them like, basically was flat broke when they started out. So money wasn't this big part of the story. What was a big part of the story was them connecting with people who could help them execute their ideas. So Marie Curie ends up meeting, well, she wasn't Marie Curie then, she was Marie Sklodowska, and she meets Pierre Curie. He happened to have invented the electrometer that would enable her to measure the tiny currents that enabled her to find radium, right? That was just incredibly important. Uh, Thomas Edison, his story is kind of fascinating. You know, he was a 16-year-old kid on a train who saw a, a toddler on the tracks about to be run over by, a, uh, you know, another train, and he just jumped off the train and scooped up the toddler and got him out of the way just in the nick of time, saved his life. And the station master came out shaken because it was his son that was the toddler on the tracks. And he said, I owe you everything. Come back here tomorrow and I will teach you how to operate uh, the, the, the telegraph machine and that way you will always have a job. And that's how Thomas Edison got involved in, you know, working with telegraph machines. And then he met other people through the network of people who operate telegraph machines that ended up eventually becoming part of his team at Edison Labs. Uh, most of us know that Steve Jobs 
really, really needed Steve Wozniak. Some people are inclined to say that, you know, it was all Steve Wozniak, but Wozniak is very forward about saying, no, he needed Steve Jobs too. Steve Wozniak says Apple would have never happened without Steve Jobs. So the two of them were just a synergistic match that enabled you know, Apple to happen. And then later Steve Jobs needed people like Joni Ives and, and other people that were part of the Apple team. Uh, so finding people who can help you execute, you know, Elon Musk leans very heavily on a guy named J.B. Straubel, who is just a brilliant engineer. And uh, it's not that Elon Musk lacks engineering capabilities. They say he understands rockets down to the atom, uh, knows absolutely all the science behind it, but he needs to also have some of the best engineering minds around him to help him execute. Okay. Fascinating. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting tension between how much do I do on my own and then when do I bring somebody in? Yeah. Yeah. And some of them weren't as good at it as others. Like Nikola Tesla was just so much more comfortable working alone that he never really had a lab um, which which might have slowed him down a little bit, although he achieved an awful lot in his lifetime. Um, you know, Albert Einstein worked alone a lot. He he got some math help from Marcel Grossman and a few others when he was young, but he mostly worked alone. But Benjamin Franklin, on the other hand, needed the cooperation of lots of people to execute on his innovations. So he really worked on cultivating a charismatic and persuasive vocal style. Very interesting. And we know that about Ben Franklin, that he was quite an engaging personality. Now, do you find that as people come up with the idea and that they're ready to, they now know they need people, that they start to reach out in different ways that they didn't do before? Do they sort of see the need for humans and it changes their approach? Well, the smart ones do. (laughs) There might be a bunch (laughs) of them out there who are wondering why they haven't accomplished their innovation on their own, right? We don't, there's a lot of innovators that we will never see and haven't seen. I I fundamentally believe there are vastly more breakthrough innovators out there than, than the ones we ultimately see because a lot of them just aren't in the right time, right place. They don't find their Wozniak or their Pierre. Uh, and uh, or maybe they're just not in the right temporal occasion to for something to happen in the area they're working in. Uh, yeah, so I think there I think there's probably lots of innovators out there who need to learn how to reach out. And, but you know what? We can also try to connect people. We should be actively looking to connect people to the other people they need, right? We, we should be asking people, what are you working on? What are your ideas? Who can I connect you to who might help you uh, execute? And if they don't know, ask your own network. Who would help this? Who could be the right person to help this person execute on their ideas? Re- networking people could be one of the most valuable resources, I think, in the next century. I, I think it already is in many ways. I'm such a believer that everything gets done through the network, ultimately right. in one way or another. Fascinating. And that's another way in which you could, as a leader, get more creativity out of your team. And that's this focus on looking at people who are having time to think on their own and having some ideas, even if they're not necessarily well grounded at that moment, and asking the question, what are you interested yeah. in and how can I help you? And who can yeah. I introduce you to? And following through with that one. Absolutely. Okay. Melissa, we are out of time this time. Oh. Uh, sadly, because I'd love to keep talking about it. My guest today is Melissa Schilling. The book is Quirky, the Remarkable Story of Traits and Foibles and Genius of Breakthrough Innovators Who Changed the World. I'm going to come back. I still think that the, the most important insight for me in this entire talk is this notion that I need time alone to think 
and collect my ideas and write and think out into the future. Two, I need something I really deeply care about. And three, then I need that moment where I find people are going to help me make it real. So it's the combination of alone, bigger purpose, and people who can help me. Melissa, what a great set of results. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, and join us next week for another episode on how to get out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.